this is Penny Johnson, and you're listening to From Stage to Page, an audiobook podcast devoted to the forgotten stories and memoirs of female performing artists from the late 19th and early 20th centuries. In this episode, we begin with Leszczycki as I Knew Him, written by Ethel Newcomb and published in 1921 by D. Appleton and Company. Dedicated to M.L.R. Forward. The bare facts of Theodore Leszczycki's life are well known. His distinguished personality has been the subject of several books and many articles of merit. One book is by the Countess Potoska, his sister-in-law, another by Annette Hulla, his pupil. He was born in Poland at the castle of Lankut near Lemberg, June 22, 1830. His father, a Bohemian by birth, held the position of music master to the family of the Potoska. His mother, Teresa von Allmann, was a Pole. Leszczycki died in Dresden in 1915. Much besides has been said and written of him as a teacher and of his manner of instruction and a great diversity of opinion expressed concerning the so-called method. Madame Bray and Fräulein Printner, two of his most experienced assistants, have written admirable books. To the reader, who may wonder what I could possibly add to this material, a word of explanation is due. I have not intended to write biographical facts already many times rehearsed, or to defend the sane and broad principles of beautiful piano playing, which were the basis of the master's teaching, and are far beyond the scope of any such limiting term as method. During several years of association with Leszczycki, first as his pupil and later as assistant, a great many interesting and amusing experiences were impressed on my memory. Many of these have an interpretive value in helping to a more intimate knowledge of the man and teacher, and it is in the hope that they may fulfill this purpose that I have felt encouraged to relate them. Everyone knows that the career of a pupil studying with a great master is a stormy and difficult one, and never easy, especially if that master be a great one. For that reason, I hope that no reader will be hurt or displeased on finding his own experience, or perhaps one that resembles his own very closely, brought to light. My best justification for these personalities is that I have not spared myself. And if in the opening chapters I have dwelt on my youthful impressions and told in too much detail the story of my own musical development, it is because I have found it easier to illustrate in personal terms one of Leszczycki's most conspicuous traits, the profound interest which he felt in his pupils. Leszczycki as I knew him. Chapter 1 
When I first went to Europe, I was taken by my aunt, who had studied piano with Pruckner in Stuttgart some years before. We had really gone abroad to visit my uncle in England, but I had my father's permission to spend a year on the continent to study music or anything else that I liked. One year was thought enough, of course, to make a finished artist. It was my aunt's idea that I should take up the study of piano. On both sides, my family were musical, but my aunt was the only trained musician among them. In her opinion, I was nothing less than a prodigy. I had played by ear as long as I could remember, but there was nothing I hated so much as learning notes. And so, until I went to Europe, I played mostly by ear, and used to imitate my aunt's playing as well as I could. I was also brought out on several occasions to play at her pupils' recitals. My father, however, had old-fashioned prejudices against artists, and desired nothing less than that one of his children should become a professional musician. We already knew of Leschetitsky, but my aunt, who was somewhat puritanical and was alarmed at certain rumors she had heard about the great pedagogue of Vienna, had decided that our year could be more profitably and safely spent in the conservative atmosphere of Stuttgart. The hands raised in horror there at the mere mention of Leschetitsky's name only confirmed my guardian in the opinion that she had chosen well for me. He was, they said, the last person in the world to whom one should take a young girl for lessons. All this only stimulated my curiosity and desire to go to Vienna. One day, oddly enough, after I had begun my lessons in Stuttgart, a letter came from my father, informing me that he had heard of a good teacher in Vienna. His name was Leschetitsky. He had been Paderewski's teacher, and might be worth going to, he thought. If I were going to study music at all, I should go to the best. In Stuttgart, the kind and distinguished Professor Pruckner had pronounced me very musical, but was doubtful if I could ever acquire enough technique to play well. He was a delightful pianist himself, and had been a pupil of Liszt. He told me many things Liszt had said to him about the piano, and concerning the relation of art to life, and very generously gave me autographs of Liszt. But, while I was very sorry to part with this interesting and valuable teacher, I was only too eager to get away from the stuffy air of Stuttgart. With my father's suggestion to give emphasis to my pleadings, I finally persuaded my aunt to write to an acquaintance of hers in Vienna and ask him how we might best approach Leschetitsky. This acquaintance had been a colleague of my aunt during her student days in Stuttgart. He had since married another pianist and was well established as a teacher in Vienna. After hearing from his wife that they would undertake to put us in touch with Leschetitsky, we started. To improve our chances of an introduction to the master, we provided ourselves with letters from ambassadors and other persons of importance a precaution which must have caused him some amusement. The friends to whom we had written met us at the station, 
and conducted us to a small hotel in the outskirts of Vienna. I began to study with them, believing, of course, that I was being prepared for the great teacher. We had not thought to find out who the master's assistants were, but after a time it occurred to us that we were never meeting any of his pupils or anyone who seemed to have any connection with him. After studying three or four months, we began to inquire when we could go to Leschetizky. But there was never a definite answer, and one day, in my aunt's absence, I was asked to sign a legal-looking document, requiring me to agree that for a period of two years I would not study with anyone in Vienna but the man from whom I was then having lessons. Naturally, the paper made me suspicious and I refused to sign it, saying I preferred to wait until my aunt's return. It was only then that we realized in what a neat trap we had been caught, but we at last managed to meet a real pupil of Leschetizky, who told us that these teachers were in no way connected with him, and that, on the contrary, they had a working system of keeping pupils away from him, by pretending to be his assistants, with a preparatory course stretching indefinitely into the future. It was hearsay that other people were involved in their scheme of intrigue, hirelings who met strangers at the stations, and a certain well-known clergyman who always recommended this couple when people wrote him for advice about studying in Vienna, at the same time warning them against Leschetizky. We found it very difficult to leave these people, and so bitter was their resentment that it was not until years afterward that they would condescend even to greet us when we met in a concert hall. It was really very easy to get an appointment with Leschetizky for the purpose of playing to him. Once at least, we had not needed the ambassador's letters and could have gone by ourselves if we had only known it through the pupil of his who had helped us to escape from our first teachers in Vienna, we met Fräulein Prentner, one of his real preparatory teachers, and it was she who took us to Leschetizky. It was his dinner hour when we arrived at the house, about five o'clock. From beyond the doors connecting the music room with the dining room came sounds of festivity, and my first impression was that a very gay party was going on. I remember thinking how amusing it would be to meet all those people, and I felt rather sorry that Leschetizky had to leave such pleasant company to hear me play. There was a great deal of laughing and talking during the few minutes that we waited. Then the doors opened, and the great master stood before us, amiable and smiling. There was nothing of the elderly pedagogue in his manner of receiving us, but such a quality of friendliness that I was at once at ease with him. Nor did he appear old to me, for all the more than sixty years he counted at that time. Even my immaturity recognized the remarkable, enduring youth of Leschetizky's personality, and I recall my wonder at his alert step and his active, supple, and astonishingly young-looking hands. After chatting with us for a few minutes, 
he inquired how long we intended to stay in Europe. I told him we had already been there six months, and had just succeeded in getting to him. Then, after a short interview, he asked me to play. When I had finished, his comment was that I probably played a great deal by ear, and did not read well. The criticism astonished me, and I wondered how he could possibly have known this. To be able to play by ear, Leshetitsky explained, was really a talent in itself, but something that one dispensed with the more one studied. Then he tested my ear and smiled at me in a still more friendly fashion, but when he gave me something to read, it was done so badly that I was convinced he had discovered in me an abyss of ignorance, at least in so far as the theoretical knowledge of music was concerned. However, my playing as a whole seemed to please him, and he asked if I could arrange to take four lessons from Fräulein Prentner before we returned to England. Then he puzzled me very much by asking if I could settle down seriously and devote an hour a day to the piano during the summer. My idea of serious study was sitting at the piano many, many hours a day, and I wondered what he could mean by this. I had heard that Leschetizky's pupils studied eight or ten hours a day, and that they were only too easily recognized in Vienna by swollen muscles and bandaged hands. It was concentration and right habits of study that counted more than the time spent, he told me, and then, smiling whimsically, said he supposed it would be very hard for me to give up my good times. Still, he added, you should learn to feel that your music is a good time. While we talked, Leschetizky regarded me with a sort of gentle and kindly amusement. A silver buckle, which I was wearing, seemed to attract him particularly, and even when I questioned him about my study, I noticed that his eyes wandered admiringly toward the buckle. At last he asked me where I got it, adding, a young lady who dresses so tastefully should learn to play well. Encouraged, but with great trepidation, I inquired if he would have me for a pupil. Certainly, he responded, to my aunt's great relief, I will teach you. Then he became very earnest, and told me that I must strengthen my fingers. While I showed a very promising natural talent, in his opinion, I had neither strength nor technique. Even when he spoke in criticism, Leschetizky's manner was so gracious that I instinctively felt I had found a friend. All this had not been quite formal enough for my aunt, who was also hoping for lessons, and realized far more than I the tremendous importance of getting to Leschetizky. I had been excited, but not at all overawed by the interview, at the same time conscious of a certain glamour and fascination associated with so celebrated a person. My rather casual attitude had not been disturbed by any formality on the part of Leschetizky, while, it must be admitted, my aunt was distinctly surprised and a little shocked by his lack of ceremony. My aunt was always very much in earnest about everything, particularly her music. 
When she told Leshetitsky she wished to play for him, he, too, became quite serious, too serious even for her. Leshetitsky knew far better than my aunt that she was too settled in her way of playing to be influenced by him, as he liked to mould a pupil's style to his ideas. She was, however, a woman of distinction and some attainment, and Leshetitsky recognized in her a personality that could not easily be dismissed. He expressed his willingness to hear her play. My aunt went to the piano. Tremulous with excitement, her hands fluttered over the keyboard. In her nervousness, she could not even find the place to start. After a few minutes' agitated searching of the keys, she began the Barcarolle of Chopin, and proceeded very shakily as far as the difficult passage in trills. Here her fingers failed her entirely, and the Barcarolle collapsed. "'But you see, madame,' Leshetitsky commented, not unkindly, "'to play a piece, one must be able to do even the hardest measures in it.' And then, gently pulling a lock of his own white hair, he said, "'But one can always learn. I learn every day of my life.' Always afterward, Leshetitsky spoke of my aunt as Tante Palpita, tanti palpiti. In justice to my dear aunt, I must add that, in spite of mature years and many discouragements, she progressed enough to have a few lessons with Leshetitsky, and, as time went on, the palpitation was less in evidence. We talked again about my studies and the lessons which I was to have with Fräulein Prentner before returning to England. I promised to study well, but at the same time, the absurd notion possessed me that I had already accomplished the most difficult part. I had played for Leshetitsky, and had been accepted as his pupil. In the autumn I would return, and, by virtue of some miracle, he would in a short time make an artist of me. If I had gone to Leshetitsky as an older or more advanced musician, there would doubtless have been quite another impression to record. Then, perhaps, I should have had a presentiment of the formidable old man and critical master, who often reduced prospective pupils to such a state of terror that they never dared appear before him again. His mood was kindly that afternoon, and I felt that he had petted and indulged me as a child. Small wonder that no shadow of future struggle cast itself across my dreams. It would all be so easy, I thought, under such a genial and kindly master. As we left the master's house, I felt myself in a glow and days of happiness, which no sternness on the part of my aunt or of Fräulein Prentner could disturb. Chapter 2 During June, already a year since I left home, I studied with Fräulein Prentner, covering, however, only the most elementary principles of technique in the few lessons which I had before we left for England at the end of the month. But I had high hopes of overcoming the weakness of my rather frail and undeveloped hands, and spent a great deal more than the promised hour a day at the piano during that summer. 
The people with whom we had studied before this in Vienna had, indeed, many good ideas, but I realized now I was beginning at the foundation, and that I should have to show myself a diligent student. September found us in Austria again, this time at Altenmarkt on the Triesting, a little village about two and a half hours from Vienna. Fräulein Prentner had a few pupils there, and my study began in earnest, while all the time I was eagerly looking forward to the day when I should see Leschetizky again, and should have made enough progress to begin lessons with him. Altenmarkt eventually became a place of real importance to me. It was a charming hamlet of about two hundred peasants, all very curious about the little foreigners who had come to this remote place to study music. Why had we come there, and who was the great man our parents had sent us so far to know? They were sure that there were men in Vienna who knew a great deal, but they supposed there were some in our countries who knew a lot more. But surely there could not be a place more beautiful than Vienna. Later I used to leave Vienna, when I had special studying to do, and go out to the cottage of these hospitable people, where there was actually a good grand piano, the wedding gift of the father of the girl who had married a man from a much larger village in Austria. This stranger had a great reputation in Altenmarkt. He read books, and, according to his admirers, knew some of them by heart. However, a few years later, he utterly disappeared, and when I appeared at the familiar door one day, after sending telegrams that I was coming and receiving no answer, I found strange forbidding-looking faces instead of the kind ones I had known. The belief was that the burgomaster had gone to America to join his summer guests. As a matter of fact, his wife had not heard from him for two or three years, and believed he was dead. Many of the peasants in this little place had suffered greatly from the disappearance of this man, the burgomaster, who had taken all the money from the town with him, and as they were suspicious and superstitious, as well as ignorant, they treated his wife unkindly for a time. She asked me if I would walk down the street with her to convince the people that her husband's whereabouts were unknown to us Americans. In seven years he had not returned, but the peasants, seeing their mistake, grew to like and trust us again. But that first summer, when everything was serene and beautiful, there were three of us who studied the piano, and we vied with one another in making as quick preparation as possible for the lessons with Leschetizky. Three months of preparation brought me to that coveted goal. Late in November, we went back to Vienna, and the lesson was arranged, to which I brought the first three Czerny studies, opus 740, and three small pieces. To my delight, the lesson went off successfully. You have shown temperament, Leschetizky told me. Now we will see if it is your own or if it is due to the teaching of Fräulein Prentner. At any rate, you need not continue any longer with an assistant, but come every week to me. 
in the then uncertain and undeveloped state of my musical training, those first lessons seemed to focus about one important point which illumined everything I studied. This point was impressively put to me the first time I played those three Czerny studies for Leszczycki. Much piano technique was contained in these Czerny studies, but technique, he explained, was of very little value in itself and was useful only as a means of expressing beauty. He talked at once of a threefold process of mind, eye, and ear. The lack of one of those essentials of talent was a serious matter in the development of an artist. Some had a good memory, but the ear was either naturally deficient or was not trained to listen. Others had, perhaps, great powers of expression and tones, but with no keyboard sense whatsoever, and this he attributed to a lack of training of the eye. He used to say also that getting to the bottom of the keys in playing was a question of eye as much as of touch. The real pianist, as distinguished from the piano player, had these three qualities, either naturally or developed. But Leszczycki attacked them separately, he began to teach me where to look in learning a piece, and then, when I had become familiar with all the positions, he would call upon me to try to hear at last what I was playing. I supposed, of course, that I had heard, but according to his meaning of the word, I may have never really heard at all. In all my lessons there was never much said about technique. On one occasion, where I lacked tone, and asked him if I should use the thumb. Of course, he said, use the thumb. Use the finger that is the most suitable at the time. Learn several different fingerings, and then judge which is the best one. One only helps the other. But I should say, at this particular place, that if you had ten thumbs, you should put them all on that one note. This is the way it should sound he would always say, and then play a few notes himself. Train your eye and ear, he always reiterated, and the rest will take care of itself. In time, one became accustomed to trying to imitate him. If the ear were not trained well enough to accomplish this at once, he would advise with great patience, trying again slowly, at a snail's pace. Sitting at his piano, perhaps without even looking up, he would say, The third finger is too loud. I would take the thumb there. Or, looking at the hands, The fifth finger is not yet strong enough. If these ideas of his about learning to play were more generally understood, it would silence once for all those critics who have judged Leszczycki from the reports of his untalented and unobserving pupils and those who claimed that his title to fame was derived more from his ability to give a technical equipment to the student than from his skill in developing the means of musical expression. In Stuttgart, they had talked to me about technique. But in Vienna, I heard very little about it. Technique seemed to be only a clever and intelligent way of doing things. Strong fingers, Leszczycki claimed, could be acquired in many ways besides thumping the piano. 
As for that hard and fast Leschetizky method of which we heard so much, I soon discovered its very elastic texture. While living in Altenmarkt, I had formed a lifelong friendship with two American girls, two sisters from Winchester, Virginia. One of them, Virginia Cover, a most talented and accomplished girl, who all too soon gave up her music for marriage, was also being prepared for Leschetizky. We each had our peculiar difficulties. I had to make my hand heavier. She had to make hers lighter. We tried all sorts of tricks to hurry up the process, paper wads between the fingers while we practiced, and, in my friend's case, a strap which she wore every night on her double-jointed thumb. Our hands were quite different, but we studied along the same lines, not guessing what significance this physical difference would have for Leschetizky when we should come to him for lessons. We finished our preparation at about the same time, and at the second lesson each was given a Beethoven sonata to study. Of course we set out to help each other. My friend had her lesson first, and told me everything she could remember about it. I even appropriated the fingerings. When my turn came, and I began to play the first movement, Leschetizky looked at me in surprise and exclaimed, What made you do a thing like that? It is not necessary or becoming to you at all, and your hand will never do it. Then, seeing my pages black with pencil marks, he laughed and told me he was afraid I had not understood him at the last lesson. It is not always easy for two people to come to the same understanding of terms, he said. We must learn to understand each other at the piano. As he went back to his piano, I heard him say, Really must I do that all over again? In amazement, I exclaimed that I had never played the sonata for him at all, it was then that he recalled my friend's lesson, and instantly there came to him a picture of her heavy, strong hand. Although annoyed with himself at having confused us, he at once took the greatest interest in showing me how differently I must attack every difficulty in the piece. Not only must the fingering be altered, but even the tempos and shadings. My friend had undertaken to write down all his suggestions of interpretation, and these I had conscientiously transcribed to my own copy and put them in practice as well as I could. Oh, yes, he said, you have stitched in these expressions. And, taking a pencil, he erased every mark on the page. If one wishes to remember some special point, he said, it is better merely to put a cross over that place in the music as a reminder. Always ask yourself questions and try to find out for yourself what is the best way. Here then for me were two illuminating ideas. One, that the ear must memorize and the other, that a piece should require even different interpretations by two people of contrasting physical characteristics and temperaments. The first of the celebrated class meetings was held that year early in December. It would be quite impossible to exaggerate the importance of these occasions to the students or to Leschetizky. 
we met at about five o'clock in the afternoon. And so far from there being any real formality, the atmosphere was very festive and exciting. Leshetitsky was happy on those occasions, and always appeared with his white hair beautifully dressed and curled for his family, as he called his pupils. Nothing was allowed to interfere with these Wednesday afternoon private concerts called the class. It was the master's purpose to make the conditions as difficult as possible for those who played. Learn to play in public here, he said, and if you can do it here, you can do it anywhere. He said that for 25 years he had kept a record of every piece played in the class and the name of every student who performed. About 150 students made up the class, and from them a half dozen or so who had good lessons or who were preparing for concerts were asked to play. I had heard rumors of some who had actually broken down there, and this, I discovered, was as great an offense and affront to the class as it would be to an audience. I was a bit overwhelmed, knowing the brilliant students who were part of that season's class, when Lishetitsky asked me at my second lesson if I did not wish to play. Osip Gabrilovich was there, also Catherine Goodson, George Proctor of Boston, Arthur Schnabel, and Bertha Jan, the class prodigies. When Wednesday came and the class assembled, Leshetitsky made out a list of those who were going to play and, pointing his finger at me, said suddenly, You are going to play today. To my inquiry as to what I should play, he rejoined mischievously, Oh, you have so much to choose from? I gave him the names of the three pieces I had played in my lesson that week and waited my turn to play. The first went well, and I was about to go on to the second, a mazurka of his own, when he stopped me. Wait a moment. Can't you make a little modulation from the first piece to the second? he asked. I told him I was afraid I could not. Have you never studied harmony? was the next question. Not yet, professor, I answered whereupon I was painfully aware of amusement in the class. There were gasps in one corner, commiseration in another, and all around me a buzz of speculations as to how Leshetitsky would receive this announcement. Not yet, he repeated. But you have played Liszt Rhapsodies. That is real American. Turning to Arthur Schnabel, who was then a boy of eight or nine, Leshetitsky asked him to come forward and make a modulation for the lady. The use of the word lady made me realize in a moment that I was a grown-up beside this boy who made my modulation with the greatest ease and beauty, and that I must have cut a ridiculous figure in Leshetitsky's eyes by playing Beethoven's sonatas and Liszt rhapsodies without a knowledge of the barest elements of theory. That first trying experience in the class stamped on my mind the conviction that there were other elements in the education of a musician besides technique. As I look back upon my first two years in Vienna, I know that a great deal of the subtlety and finesse in Leshetitsky's teaching were lost on me. I was young and impressionable, and the many-sided, 
highly colored Viennese life had an irresistible fascination for me. Just to be there was delightful. The splendor of royal and military functions thrilled me. It was all like looking on at a colorful and absorbing play, and though visions of handsome officers in brilliant cafes sometimes interfered with complete concentration, an awakening imagination must have compensated Leschetizky for my lack in other directions, else he never would have shown such wonderful patience in reiterating those principles which lay at the foundation of all beautiful piano playing as he taught it. To listen, always to listen, and to open one's ears, were phrases he used again and again. Play the first half of your phrase, he would tell me, then stop and listen to it over again without playing it. When you crossed the ocean, did you not often go to the stern and look back upon the track that your steamer had made? There is really no track, but you know exactly the course your ship has taken, and you know how, when you have said an emotional thing to a person, it becomes clearer and clearer as you reflect upon it. You remember the tone better than anything else. Then, perhaps, you will run back and apologize for your remarks if the tone has been unwarranted. Or, if you have spoken weakly, you wish you had been more forceful. If you study the first part of your phrase, trying to hear over again the exact tone you have used, you will always know what to do with the second half. There was a little game to which Leschetizky often resorted to help one learn how to carry a phrase in one's mind. On one side of the piano, he put a plate of beans, and on the other, an empty plate. First one had to idealize the phrase. Here it played with all the taste and beauty imaginable. Then, if it was played correctly, a bean was transferred to the empty plate. Another attempt, if successful, brought a second bean to join the first, and so on until all the beans were transferred to the once-empty plate. But if the phrase went badly just once, all the beans had to go back, and the process began afresh. It was a splendid lesson in concentration, and worked beautifully, not only with children but with grown-ups as well, who were in the habit of repeating a phrase over and over again, never stopping to think of improving it before repetition. This game brought about great respect for the beans, which, in the end, were treated as solemnly as an audience. If humor could press home a point, Leschetizky never failed to make use of it. I can never forget my surprise and chagrin when he came into the room one day, apparently ill, and gave me this reproachful greeting. You, my dear pupil, are to blame for this. You played so coldly at your last lesson that you have given me rheumatism. Leschetizky never missed an opportunity to impress upon me that one's best study could be done away from the piano. He habitually carried some phrase in his mind and would often go on a long walk to study how best to play the piece. One could more easily imagine the beauties of music, he said, than one could reveal them in actual playing. Tempos and shadings could be learned away from the piano, much time could be saved, 
and the repertoire could be extended by studying while walking or seated in a train. Listening to the inward singing of a phrase was of far more value than playing it a dozen times. Nothing annoyed and disappointed Leshetitsky more than the failure to open one's ears and listen. There was one pupil who had studied with him for several years and had developed a conventional big technique, coming at last to the stage where the master was willing to hear him play the Schumann fantasy. That was really a point of arrival, for the fantasy was a great favorite with Leshetitsky, and he would tolerate nothing but the most beautiful performance of it. He listened intently to the first phrase, and, stepping to the piano, said dramatically, Goodbye. The pianist was too much amazed to comprehend his meaning, and Leshetitsky repeated, Goodbye, I really mean it, he said, and we shall never meet again at the piano. A man who would play that first phrase like that would murder his mother. Of course, as the time approached for me to go home, I tried very hard to remember everything Leshetitsky had told me, because I had little hope of ever coming back to him. The three years which I had spent in Europe seemed to me a very short time, but my parents considered it altogether too long. Fearing I might become too much the European, my father had sent my sister Mary to join me at the beginning of the third year, with the message that we were to enjoy ourselves that last year, go to Italy if we liked, but, above all, return to him happy and content to remain at home. My sister began to study the violin, but gave it up for the sake of her voice, which a good teacher in Vienna thought very beautiful, and Leshetitsky, who was very critical of voices, encouraged her. In consequence, she too became very serious in her attitude toward a career in music. At the end of the third year, my aunt, my sister, and I went home, and, as I expected, my father met every word about further study in Europe with utter disapproval. We were pale-looking. We were becoming foreign in our ways. We spoke of careers and of royalty, and worst of all, I had returned with feelings of veneration and awe for my master, Leshetitsky. I had also returned bitterly dissatisfied with myself, and, it must be confessed, my playing was anything but enjoyable to listeners. I was overcome with a sense of my own deficiency. I had tried to gain strength and technique, but my few big pieces remained in a half-learned condition. Two or three small compositions were really all that I had to show for three years' study in Europe. These were either thoughtfully and timidly played, or else in a style too hard and unwieldy. It was not possible in two years' study with Leshetitsky to get the best from him unless one were far advanced. If one had learned to listen to tones, that was in itself a great lesson, but rather discouraging in the process. Nobody approved of my playing. My father did not like it at all, and took a very resentful attitude toward that old man in Vienna, as he expressed it. He could have throttled Leshetitsky for every word of discouragement, or, indeed, anything he had said that was not complimentary. But my mother, who was very artistic herself and had great sympathy with our tastes and aspirations, 
now quietly paved the way for us to return to our studies. We at last managed to sail, after a few months at home, with the promise of one more year in Europe.